shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Every single spring, that first day that I walk outside and I see that yellow dust all over my truck, I'm like, that is Satan's dandruff. It destroys me. I legitimately can't go outside for longer than three minutes because my eyes get swollen, my eyes get puffy, my nose gets congested, and I just simply can't breathe. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. When I started taking Claritin D about two months ago, I can finally get back outside and play pickleball again, which is what I love to do, but I couldn't do it because my allergies were so bad. Claritin D has legitimately allowed me to go outside again, ready to live life as if you don't have allergies it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Hey, hey. Men, women, and children, hope is in the building. Hey, welcome to the Human Hope Podcast, episode 135, 135. My name is Carlos Enrique Wittiel Guzman Archibocabel, or Los for short. And, uh, oh my goodness, first of all, you guys are going to be the first people to hear this, I think. Unless between today and tomorrow, I tell the rest of the world. But I would like to let you know that I finished my freaking manuscript. You know, as an author, I love the writing process. I love to write. I love to, to just type. I love to put the Chronicles of Narnia soundtrack in my ears. And I love to just go. This book that I just turned in. Now, take it. It's just the first draft. So I, I got a lot of work to do left after he edits it. But this book has taken it out of me. And if you... We're at any of the VIP meet and greets on the, the on the uh, what tour was that? The Here For You tour with myself and Annie F. Downs. Then you may know what the book is about and you may understand why it took me so freaking long to write this book. I I, I probably have, had spent upwards of 20 full days set aside like at cabins and hotels and Airbnbs and all the places to, to get this book out of me over the last year. And it, it wouldn't come out. Words just wouldn't come out. They'd come out like they'd sputter out a hundred at a time and then nothing. What, what, I, what I realized is that was just the hard work of digging and excavating the words because once, once I kept doing that and as frustrating as that experience is as an author where the words aren't coming out, when the dam finally breaks, you realize that the dam wouldn't have broken had you not done all the excavating earlier all the digging and the plowing earlier, 
all the taking the sledgehammer to the front of that dam and just cracking, cracking, cracking. So just a little encouragement for those of you that maybe you've got this, you know, you got something that you dream of doing or you're writing something or you're creating or you're wanting us to write music or start a business or whatever. And you're just like banging your head against the wall because it's just not working. Don't stop. Keep cracking. And I promise the dam's going to break. And then what happened is it broke for me about three or four weeks ago and exploded out. Now, now I didn't have the the time in my schedule for the dam to break when it did. <laughs> so I had to really force it. So, you know, I, I had a couple of nine hour days and on a good day, I, I don't even know if you guys care about this or not, but I mean, hopefully you care about it if you care about me. On a good day for me, now this is not the same as other authors, but for me, a good day of writing consists, like a great day, an amazing day of writing consists of 10,000 words. A good day of writing consists of 5,000 words. A day of writing consists of 3,000 words. And a bad day of writing for me consists of under 1,000 words. And when I say a bad day, I'm just saying like accomplishing the goal. Sometimes those 300-word days are exactly what you need to get to the 10,000-word days. So anyway, that it's off to the editor. I feel just breath in my lungs and a relief. I, I guess I didn't even know that it was stressing me out, but it was. The book is, you know, it's on its way. So I, th- I think we're nine, nine months away now. Uh, there's going to be a lot. This is the the craziest story I've ever told. Craziest thing I've ever been through. And you're going to hear about it. And if you heard about it on tour, you know what's coming. Okay, let's hop right into it. Today, speaking of books, I have had for the longest time, since 2020, and, and I was speaking up on the black experience, the male black experience in America and all of the things. I had a lot of people that were asking me to put a police officer on the show. And I never, I, I couldn't find the right one. The right one meaning there's actually two police officers that I want to put on the show. And I finally found one of them. I wanted someone that was well-versed, not emotive, yet understood that there is work to be done. And I feel like I have I have found that in today's guest. Today's guest is Edwin Raymond. Edwin, first of all, I love that name. Edwin served in the New York PD, NYPD, for over 15 years. He served for over 15 years, and he was born and raised in East Brooklyn. So you've got a New York native policing his own neighborhoods. And what Edwin dives into, he, he wrote a book called An Inconvenient Cop. <laughs> I love that. And it's called My Fight to Change Policing in America. This is a 15-year police veteran that realized there are things that need to be fixed. Now, he's not coming the perspective from the perspective of abolishing the police. To be honest with you, like I understand the perspective that people have when they say that, and I get it. I'm just not of that. It's okay. It's okay if we disagree, but I'm just not of that mindset and, and that opinion. I'm grateful for policing in America. I've, I'm grateful for police in my community. And I'm grateful for the times I've had to call 911 and they've showed up. But I'm not grateful for the times I've had to call 911 at 11 p.m. when my family wasn't here and I was locked out of my house, but there was a strange van in my driveway and I was freaking out because of some things that happened on the internet. And I thought, oh my gosh, and I called 911. But then I had to tell the 911 operator, you're going to see a black man standing in, in the front yard. That's me. I know this is an old white neighborhood, but it's me. So like, I, I, I didn't love having to say that, but I just felt like I had to, right? So I've been looking for a police officer to come in and, and help us. And... Edwin is step one in that conversation. You know, this book is 
I don't read a lot of books. I write books. I just don't read a lot of books. I devoured this one, you know, to, to see that why Edwin became a police officer and then why he stepped away and what he thinks can help the system. It's an incredible conversation. I think that you're going to really be not only intrigued, uh, but it's going to give you some answers, some answers that even I have been looking for for a long time. So Human Hope family, this is a really good one. Uh, it's an incredible conversation. I'm so grateful for Edwin uh, for allowing me the opportunity to interview him. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Edwin Raymond. Okay, Human Hope family, I am actually holding in my hand uh, this book, An Inconvenient Cop. An Inconvenient Cop. You've heard of An Inconvenient Truth. Well, now we got An Inconvenient Truth Teller uh, in Edwin Raymond. Edwin, say hey to the Human Hope family. Human Hope family, how are you? It's a pleasure to be on the show. I uh, can't wait to get into the details. Yes, let's let's do it. Um, well, just so the Human Hope family knows, I started following you in the midst of 2020. The summer of 2020 is when I stumbled across you, your page, and I was at the same time, kind of telling some inconvenient truths from my perspective uh, as a black man in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, and and what 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 I was kind of dealing with. And you know, Edwin, as I had these conversations with a lot of people, I, I and here's the thing: I'd never had these conversations before, right? Suddenly, I was thrust into having these conversations. I, a lot of my followers were like, well, Carlos, like, it's not really that bad. Like, like I, I understand, you know, kind of, kind of your perspective on policing and maybe you've maybe, maybe things are different. I want you to just start from jump street and tell us about your history in policing uh, and just kind of tell us your story and where this book came about. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, I was born and raised and still live in the East Flatbush section of Brooklyn. And, um, this was the old New York, you know, it was mm. rough. Uh, the violence was exponentially more than it is now. Yeah. I grew up, I grew up really rough childhood. I lost my mom at a very young age. I was only three. Wow. Uh, my dad didn't speak. In- yeah. My dad migrated here from Haiti, so he didn't speak English. Okay. Um, it, it was a rough childhood. Yeah. Uh, despite that surrounding though, I was able to walk a pretty straight path. Wow. But around 15 years old, that didn't stop the police from harassing uh, me as well as others in the community. Wow. And for a few years, I, I went through that harassment. And around 18, I made a what's now I realized was a crazy decision. I said, huh. when, when I'm going to join the police department when I can to analyze it, see why these things happen. Huh. And most importantly, what, what can be done about it? Wow. Wow. Yeah. You say see these things happen. Can you uh, start speaking a little bit into uh, some more details, what these things means? Yeah. So when everything aligns and we get to a point where someone, you know, needlessly loses, you know, their lives, where people needlessly lose their lives at the hands of police. Yeah. Obviously, this is when people pay attention. This is when it goes viral. This is when we, we go out and march, we demand change. But I was more focused on the insidious things, mm. right? And and what I learned is those insidious things, the, the, the everyday harassment, the everyday behavior of police is what often leads to those deaths that, that we wow. didn't see viral. Yeah. So these things is harassments, uh, racial profiling. I didn't know it then, but quotas and pressure on police to for, for enforcement activity, which includes ticket summonses, uh, arrest, stop and frisk, just everything that's contributing to just discriminatory racist policing. Yeah. 
the, <laughs> I, I hear you say that you, you say quotas, like th- there's actual quotas that, that officers have t- to fulfill in their policing. Yeah. You know, police departments have to deny it because it's unlawful. You know, every sure. state you go to, there's no state where it's legal. So they'll deny it, but this is how it functions. It's all about those numbers. Those numbers on the spreadsheets uh, every 28 days is what matters. And this is what, more than anything else that I've observed in 15 years in law enforcement, the pressure to meet those the, the demands of those numbers and the incentives structure is more responsible for police beh- certain behaviors, especially the detrimental behaviors that we see, than sure. really even the, the personal biases, the politics, more than anything else, it's it's the demand to meet those numbers. Wow, wow. So okay, so so now now take us into take us into the beginning of your policing. Uh-huh. Uh, take us into the beginning of okay. Now you, I don't know when it was that you joined the police force, but now you're in, yeah. And uh, and you begin to see these things. Walk, walk us through those first few years of maybe the. I mean, here you are, like a local, like like you're policing your neighborhood, your people. Tell us about the dichotomy of of what was happening in your heart and in your mind as you were doing this. Yeah. So I'll actually start with the police academy, right? Okay. I'm 22 years old. It's 2008. Um, A senator from Illinois is about to become president, and I'm in the police academy. Because of the experiences that I've had, the experiences that I know that many of us have had, I'm assuming at 22 that we're taught to, to police that way. Mm. I was actually quite shocked, Carlos, when after the six months, after the end of the journey, I couldn't make the correlation between the harassment that I knew I received wow. and the training. Yeah, so I was like, wait, so what is it if it's not the training? Yeah. Day one on actual patrol after uh-huh. graduating the police academy, we were given quotas, right? Four arrests, 10 tickets, 10 stop and frisk. Wow. And at first I, I said to myself, maybe they, they're giving us these this pressure so we can get the what they call enforcement activity so that when it happens organically, we'll, we'll be familiar with the paperwork and the procedures, et cetera. But it was relentless, right? Every day, it was all about those numbers. And then I started to watch peers that I knew uh-huh. from the police academy and the decisions that they would make. And when I would speak to them after, it would always be, well, I'm just trying to get my numbers out the way. Wow. You know, and I started just, yeah. And I started essentially zooming out and doing the math. We have 36,000 okay. police officers, you know, that work in these particular communities with these same numbers. And I started doing the math in terms of how much money that ge- uh, generates for the city through the summons is getting paid. Okay. And I realized, you know, this system is, it's a, it's, it's like a modern, it's everything we've seen in America when it comes to how black people are treated, but, yeah. but with, with a veil of legitimacy over it. You understand? Wow. Yeah. Wow. This week, Human Hope is partnering with Indeed. Indeed is the hiring partner that can help you rise to the challenge and find the help that you actually need. Listen, familia, Human Hope familia. First of all, I've gotten three responses from uh, people that they've used Indeed because of the Human Hope partnership. And so I'm grateful. So I know there's more than three, but can I tell you something? The partnership can happen uh, the best when you trust me on this. And I'm not putting things in front of you that 
I don't believe in myself. I honestly believe in Indeed. They're the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Listen, I know this isn't like a entrepreneurial podcast where everyone, all you get people are hiring all the time. I get it. But if you are, why don't you give Indeed a shot? They streamline hiring with all sorts of powerful tools that help you find matched candidates quickly. Okay. And even better, this is different than so many of the other job sites. Indeed is the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring platform delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined. Come on, somebody join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash human hope. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 job credit now at Indeed.com slash human hope. Just go to Indeed.com slash human hope and support the show by saying you heard about it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash human hope. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So day one, you're thinking, okay, the, the quota is the quota is just so that that they can make sure that I get out there and I I see and I feel and experience everything. But you're saying that that quota isn't just for rookie cops. That is, you got veterans that are out there having to meet the same numbers. It's how the entire system operates. Yeah. Wow. Which is which is why you know in specialized units. Most of them don't have quotas. This is why officers try to get into these units wow. uh, to, 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 to get off the hamster wheel. Mm. You understand? Yeah, yeah. But to get into the unit, you first have to, you first have to meet, you have to go above the quotas to get the, to get the recommendation to go into the unit. So you still have to play the game to ascend out of the, ha- it's, it's, it's a terrible, terrible wow. cycle. Wow. Okay. So, so, did you, you know, as you're, as you're policing now and you're, you're in your first few years, are you feeling at all like you're helping? Are you feeling at all like, like, you know what, like I've, I, I've been able to help a little bit. I've been able to like, what are you doing differently with your partner? Again, I don't know. I'm not familiar with how it works in policing, but what are you doing that is counterintuitive or counter counteractive to what maybe uh, the rest of the police force is doing? So the one thing that being a cop even at 22 as a rookie allowed me to do was just engage with, with our communities. Right. Yeah. So what I did different was when, especially when it was a younger person, sure. I would drop gems on them. You know, I would, I would help them see the bigger picture and understand the decisions they make today can affect tomorrow. And, yeah. and I really take advantage of, of those interactions. Um, and some of them I'm still friends with to this day, you know, really? they're older now they're some of them have families. Yeah. And they're doing great. Um, and many of them, they, you know, they say, thank you. When I was 16, you didn't see me as just a knucklehead, et cetera. Yeah. So that in early, early in my career, that's how I kind of gave back and uh, made sure that I did something differently. Also, yeah. I didn't adhere to the quota system and, you know, that, that eventually led to a lot of retaliation, but I just couldn't do it. I could not 
get down. Like if you did something in front of me, I will take police action, yeah. but I would still use my discretion, which my sergeant yeah. wasn't, he didn't agree with because for everyone you let go because it's a minor infraction, uh-huh. you're not meeting the quota. So okay. it was a lot of clashing very early in my career. Wow. Wow. And are these, are these quotas, are you getting, um, are, are police officers in the system that you were in getting, I don't know, I mean, rewarded, I guess, would, would that, is it, is it more of like you hit the quota, you get a reward or is it more, you, you don't hit the quota, something bad happens. Like, like what, what, it, what is the draw towards the quota? So if you hit the quota exactly as it is, is what you said. You just move on. When you don't hit it, you get reprimanded. But when you go above the quota, that's when you get rewarded, right? If they're asking, yeah, if they're asking for four and you're bringing six and eight arrests a month, when it's, you know, three years into your career, you can put into the detective squad and you're going to get the opportunity to become a detective. You understand? If you put in for a specialized unit, say you have, say you were in the Air Force and you want to go to aviation, yeah. you you surpass the quota, you put in for the unit, you're most likely getting into aviation. You understand? And other, so many, there's over, over 300 units in the New York City Police Department are specialized units, but you, you won't, it doesn't matter what education you come from, what experience you come with, uh-huh. if you don't first play the numbers game, you don't have yeah. a chance. Wow. So, I mean, w- would you say, Edwin, that the numbers game is the initial bottom line problem with policing in the system that we have right now? Well, that's what I found because here's the thing, right? The people who set the numbers, the people who created the system were the bigots and, and the racists and the those that yeah. had a lot of racial bias. But they've essentially found a way to bake their perspectives into policy. Mm. So by the time, you know, young Officer Whitaker puts the uniform on, despite yeah. where his politics are, despite right. where his biases are, if he simply goes along with the system, he's contributing to white supremacy. He's contributing to discriminatory uh, policing, yeah. despite how he feels about any ethnicity. You understand? So it's it's why it's so dangerous. It's, it's systemic. You yeah. understand? Yeah. No, yeah. I understand. I understand. So, okay, let, let's talk about some of the systemic parts of maybe someone that's listening to this going like, well, I mean, how, how is this systemic if, you know, do do the officers in affluent white parts of New York have the same quotas that the officers in Brooklyn or the or di- different parts of New York that maybe are majority black, like are these quotas across the table or are they more based in systems uh, or in, in spaces that are non-white? Yeah, and this is where it becomes a violation of, of the 14th Amendment, right? In the white areas, you cannot police this way. Hmm. You won't, like, you wouldn't last a week policing this way. But some will try to justify and say, well, we don't have the same crime issues in the white areas, so why would yeah. we police the same ones? Here's the problem, right? And it's called the broken windows theory. Okay. Broken windows, the notion of broken windows is let's not ignore the minor things because that's what will stop the bigger things, right? And it, it has a common sense appeal to it. Sure. But it's just not realistic. The theory is, has been, it's not empirically supported. It doesn't make sense. The idea is it, if we ignore the weed and the open container at 2 p.m., that could become the homicide at 10 p.m., mm. right? Making an, a, a, a false subtext, drawing a false subtext that yeah. that behavior leads to homicides. The thing okay. is, the number one thing that's enforced are, are substance-related offenses, okay. right? Alcohol, marijuana. Those things happen at 
similar or even higher rates in white areas. So hmm. if that open container, if that weed was what led to homicides, then where are the homicides in the white area? Uh, yes. You understand? It, it's, it's a false correlation. And unfortunately, this is what's been driving policing since about the mid 90s. Wow. Wow. Okay. Broken so windows theory. Broken windows theory. So let's, let's go from 10 feet above um, New York where you are and let's fly up to 50,000 feet. And now we're looking at America in general. Uh, are you saying that, that, and do you have stories or a, a viewpoint where this isn't just a New York policing problem? This could be applied to policing in America. And this is something that you found. So what I've learned is when smaller police departments are looking for new leadership, uh, they often go to either retiring or newly retired NYPD chiefs. Okay. So what those chiefs then do is they recreate what they know. They bring uh -huh. the numbers game, the quotas, Comstat, you know, they bring the entire system, the structure to other police departments. Yeah. And before you know it, the, ca the cancer spreads and it becomes nationwide. Uh, Miami is uh, Ferguson, one of, after Mike Brown's death, the, the Department of Justice report, it, it exposed the quota system and how it's, it's monetized. And wow. other police, other surrounding jurisdictions would come into Ferguson to meet their numbers because those tickets become money for those respective police departments and cities, et cetera. So this thing, unfortunately, from New York as the epicenter, it okay. is spread around the nation. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. So I, I think we've got the pain point now. Like, like I've heard the pain point that that is inconvenient for a lot of people uh, to hear that. What, what do we do? <laughs> Edwin, I mean, I mean, where, where is, where, where is the, uh, where's the medicine that is going to be injected into this system that hopefully will heal it? What's next? Yeah. And, and that's probably the most important question after identifying the issue. So we have to cut the cancer out, right? Okay. And the way we do that is eliminate quotas and pressure and, and the, the, the detrimental parts of Constat. You know, it's a system that was developed in the 90s that exacerbated the issue because... Constat? It, uh, it, Comstat, com Comstat, compared statistics. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, it Essentially, it's a computer system that showed hotspots where serious crime would happen, but then commanders uh, responsible for those areas would then have to increase their broken windows enforcement as a response. So sometimes that happened and crime went down. Sometimes that happened and crime went up. But as long as there was a sizable broken windows response yeah. to, to areas with high crime, the commander was, was, you know, was left, was basically told you did a good job, you did what you could, and they moved on. Yeah. We have to move away from those systems. Since I've been a whistleblower for the last seven years, mm. over 2,000 2, cops from across the nation even one as far as the Metropolitan Police in the UK huh. contacted me and said, we're having the same issues here. Wow. So what I did is I, I did the research and at some point in the 90s or early 2000s, you can find that their police leadership sent representatives to New York and then they would learn New York system and bring it back. You know, so I, I wow. realized it all goes back. Yeah, a lot of it goes back to New York. That is that is mind blowing. So, yeah. I mean, I hear remove the broken windows style of policing and the quotas and things 
is that possible? Like, 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 let, let's see if it t- take it one step farther. And like, how does this, how do these things get removed? Is it, you know, is it replacing leadership? Is it, are those even voted positions? Like, like, like what are ways that, that this can actually begin tangibly for people that are listening? They're like, okay, I, I gotta, I gotta figure yeah. out how to change this in my community. What can, what can people do tangibly? Sure. So most police leadership, they're appointed okay. positions, right? But the appointments are made by elected officials. So it does start with voting. We have to put the right people in the right mm. positions, starting with the elected officials that appoint the leadership. So most cities, that would be the mayor. Yeah, We have to choose mayors that are going to choose leaders that are visionaries. Yeah. Justice-minded law enforcement is, is the term yeah. that I use. We have to put the justice-minded in yeah. the room. If we could put them in the position of leadership, even better. Sure. But if, if they're not the leaders, they at least have to be in the room to be a counterweight to the typical um, antiquated ways of yes. doing things. So it does start with okay. leadership. Uh, second, we have to educate our, ourselves on why quotas is, is much more than just uh, a nuisance. Because when I started blowing the whistle on quotas, people would say, oh yeah, who doesn't know cops have quotas? But it's not just harassment. Sandra Bland was pulled over for a broken, was it either yeah. light or signaling? That is a broken windows type offense. Yeah. Philando Castile lost his life for a taillight. Yeah. That is a broken windows. Eric Garner. I mean, you can go down the list. I've seen, when I see police killings that start with a minor uh-huh. infraction, it always, and then I do the research into that police department, you will find at some point there was a whistleblower that tried to expose the quotas, yeah. but us as a society, we're not taking, we're not really understanding the importance of what's being exposed to take the proper yeah. action. Wow. This week, Human Hope is partnering with Haya. Haya is the children's vitamin that is pediatrician recommended that has none of that sugar and gummy junk that all the other vitamins are filled with. Typical children's vitamins literally are basically candy in disguise filled with two teaspoons of sugar, unhealthy chemicals, and other gummy junk growing kids should never eat. Y'all don't put that stuff in your kids. Put in them Haya. Haya was created again to be a superpower chewable vitamin for kids, okay? Haya fills in the most common gaps in modern kids' diets to provide the full body nourishment our kids need with that yummy, you got that yummy, yummy taste that they love, formulated with the help of nutritional experts. Haya is pressed with a blend of, get this, 12 organic fruits and veggies, and then it's supercharged, bang, with 15 essential vitamins and minerals, including vitamin D, B12, C, zinc, folgate, and so many more. Haya is designed for kids of all ages and sent straight to your door so parents have one less thing to worry about. It's just going to show up at your door. Okay, now listen, we've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling kids' vitamins. Receive 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, you must go to hayahealth.com slash humanhope. This deal is not available on their regular website. Go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H.com slash humanhope and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. You know, um, hearing this and, and knowing, knowing that a lot of, you know, I've got, I've got listeners that 
a lot of listeners that are law enforcement's families, right? Like their their spouses, they you know uh, they they live within law enforcement. I would love for you to talk to them for a minute. I, I would love for you to even even like encourage them for a minute because because I mean, let's be honest, you were in it, right? Like like I, I was watching, you were in it, and the ire of the eye of America, you know, which I think rightfully so went towards police are awful, police are bad, but you know. Ultimately, there, there's law enforcement officers and there's law enforcement families that were like you, that are like you, that are like, no, this isn't the way that it should be. Um, can you talk to them for a second? Can can you like just encourage them for a minute? Sure. Yeah. So one of the things I say in the book is police are the muscle of the mm. system, but not the system yeah. itself. Right. But when you say system, the only the most most of the times the people that you see and interact with are the yeah. police. So people oversimplify the system to being the police right. themselves. But as you said, and the term that I use to describe them is the justice-minded. Mm-hmm. Justice-minded law enforcement exists. Wow. The problem is there's, the environment doesn't exist for them to speak wow. out without, without it being very risky to their careers and livelihoods. You understand? You know, I'm very vulnerable in, in this work yeah. uh, about my childhood and how poor I grew up. When you think about that, Carlos, I'm the last person that should be doing this. You know, I, have a, I, I was able to get a career where I make a decent amount of money. Uh, I don't have a family yet, yeah. but, you know, when I become a father, hopefully I become a father one day, my children will not have to suffer the way I did. And yet I'm jeopardizing those, the ability to give them resources sure. because I'm jeopardizing my career. If we're waiting for a whole bunch of whistleblowers, it's not going to happen. It's too risky mm, as a society. Yeah. Our job is to make the landing softer so that pe- more people are willing to speak up. Our job is to give the justice mind in a platform yeah. uh, a, a seat at the mm. table, if you will, so that we can get these changes. And I understand today, many are cynical. They're like, yeah. like, think about it. Prior to George Floyd, there are people that used to say, we need to reform, we need to find ways to reform. Then after George Floyd, they said, we need to right. abolish, we need to defund, right? right? The cynicism is absolutely yeah. there. And I don't blame them because if I wasn't on the yeah. inside, if I didn't have a real look behind a curtain myself, I might've been right there yeah. with them. But I'm telling you, this thing is wow. fixable. We can move the needle in the right direction. We just have to know what buttons yeah. to press. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm assuming in your book, you get into some of those buttons. You get into some, some of those buttons that we need to press. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me this. Have you seen any police departments in America? Are there examples of police departments that have begun to shift, that have begun to change, that are beginning to police in a different way that is a healthier version of policing in America? So maybe not an entire department, okay. but... Because of the work of activists, of elected officials, of whistleblowers, yeah. we right here in New York, for instance, we went from nearly 700,000 unlawful stop and frisk in 2011 to less than 50,000 wow. in 2014 after, the, after the, the federal court case. You understand? We went from 65, oh, 65% of arrests being marijuana related to you know, the decriminalization of marijuana and now full legalization of marijuana. So when the work, when we put the pressure in the right places, the work does happen and we do feel the difference in the quality of life. Now, the young folks, this is their norm. They don't even understand what they just missed if they were just five years older. But but folks, anybody born before 1998 in New York, 
can tell you there's a difference. Wow. You know, they feel it. Wow. Yeah. That no, that that is amazing. And it's encouraging. You know, I I feel like what I what I do love about your your story and your work is there there are a lot of people out there just screaming about the problems. There's a lot of people out there that are just like that crush it all completely erase it all. Like, you know, let, let's have a free for all in society. And what I love about your work is like, you are pointing to the pain point, but you're also giving solutions uh, that I think are very practical solutions. And I, I just am, I'm just grateful for your voice. I'm grateful for your work. I'm grateful for your vulnerability. Uh, and, and I do feel like hopefully people that are listening to the podcast right now will be like, okay, wait a second. I don't feel like the sky is falling anymore. I feel like there there is some hope. This podcast is called Human Hope, uh, and you're giving us that. So I just appreciate that. Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate your words. You know, um, I'm dedicated to this mission. It's I'm very passionate about it, and and yeah, I don't know if I'm going to see all of it, sure. but I hope we can see enough of the changes that we know that it's worth doing the work because there's a lot of people that they just don't have hope yeah. anymore. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's unfortunate. Yeah, no. What what um what are where where places that people can find you? Where are places that people can kind of make sure that they're keeping up with your work if they want to kind of join in this cause? Yeah, so Instagram is where people, um, you know, they hit me up the most. It's just Edwin Raymond or E dot Raymond underscore. Okay. Uh, Edwin Raymond NYC on Twitter. Um, those are the two main spaces. But from Instagram, you can get my email okay. address. Um, again, over 2,000 law enforcement have hit me up. But so, so as many other people around the world, you know, thankfully, one of the biggest blessings in this journey has been the support. Yeah. Uh, a lot of influential people have supported me, like our brother Carl. Yeah. You know, I'm thankful for Carl and, and, and his supporting me. Uh, many people reached out after the interview I did with Carl. Yeah. Um, and so many other things I've done, you know, Trevor Noah, uh, Sean King, et cetera. You know, it's, I, the support system has been great. Um, and, and you reach, give me, it might not be immediate, but I will reach back out to you. Yes. You know, I absolutely. will answer Absolutely. Well, thank you for writing this book. I, I again, want to recommend everybody pick this up and not only pick it up, but spread the word, you know, like this is something that actually can shift when enough hands are involved. So thank you, Edwin, for your time today. You literally Absolutely. have been the definition of human hope. Thank you, brother. I appreciate, man. I, I, I don't know if I could accept that. I'm too modest to accept that. Uh, but, uh, but I'll, I work, I work towards fulfilling that. When I feel that in my, in my soul, I give you a call and say, I think I'm there. Yeah, right on. I like that. No, I like that. Thank you, Edwin. That was, I think, difficult to hear in some spaces, in some spots, but also really empowering. You know, I love that he talked about law enforcement families and how people oversimplify the problem and oversimplify the system to the police themselves when the police are literally just in a system that many times doesn't allow them to do the important work that they feel called to do. And so if you're a police officer or a police officer family, know that I'm grateful for you. I'm thankful for you. I'm, you know, I'm thankful for a whole lot that the police do. I'm, I'm so thankful for the police officers that ran into the Covenant School here in Nashville, Tennessee, and um, saved those kids. I'm thankful that they put their life on the line. They risk their lives. I'm thankful for a whole lot. And I'm thankful for messy conversations that, you know, we may agree with some, we may not agree with all. I mean, I agree with everything that Edwin said, but I'm grateful for everything that he said because he's looking at it from a different window, a different perspective than I am. Again, I've said this before on the podcast and I'll say it again. We're all looking at the same thing, right? We're looking at the same room, uh, but if we all are looking at the same room from the same wall and the same window, as opposed to walking around to the other side of the room 
from the outside and looking in from a different window, you're going to get a completely different perspective. You're going to see things on the sofa, on the front of the sofa that you couldn't see from the other window because you're just looking at the back of the sofa. And what Edwin has done is he's pulled us away from the window. We've all been looking at it through and taken us to the other side where there's another window with a different perspective, but it's the same room and we still see the same thing. Does that make sense? Okay. That was freaking awesome. And, and here's the thing. I want to let you guys know that I'm going to be changing some things up in the podcast. Um, it's still going to be me, but I feel like, uh, let's, let's, let's talk for a second. Or I'm going to talk about this more in December, but I, I feel like I want to get back to, uh, within this podcast, I want to get back to you and I having some conversations on the fly. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm all for planning and scheduling and all the things, but I feel like maybe I've been missing a little bit of the essence of kind of how we walk day to day together on Instagram. And yeah, I, I just, I think, I think I want to walk day to day with you a little bit more on this podcast. So there's some things happening. There's some shifts happening. There's some changes coming, uh, even before the end of the year that I think, uh, we're all going to enjoy. So, um, all right, that's it. Hey, Dr. Delight, come on in. Hey, 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 thanks for hanging out on the Human Health Podcast. We'll see you next Thursday. Wait, will we? No. <laughs> we will not see you next Thursday because it's Thanksgiving. I need y'all to be eating them turkeys. Eat it up. Gravy, biscuits, mashed potatoes, pretzel salad. Can somebody please let the world know about pretzel salad? I, I can't do it without pretzel salad. So have a great Thanksgiving next year. We are going to come back strong on November the 30th. Oh my goodness. Are you ready? With one of my favorite, uh, I don't know, Christian evangelical voices that people give him a hard time because of kind of things he stood against. And I think that many of you are going to enjoy the conversation with, coming up, Russell Moore on November 30th. We'll see you next time on the Human Hope Podcast.